0: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Sachin Abewadana. I am a senior machine learning engineer at Canva. Fun fact about me, I don't drink coffee, but I do lots of lots of salsa. And I don't mean the dip, I mean the dancing salsa. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to the MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Dimitrios. And today I'm flying solo, but I was just talking to Sachin. Wow. I have so many notes from this conversation. There was so many different threads that we pulled on and we talked about his journey, but we also talked about the trade-offs that you get as a machine learning engineer and having to think about the broader product and the fun stuff that these machine learning engineers like Sachin enjoy doing, which is that deep down, hard math problem. So. We get into that first thing. I knew it was going to be a great conversation because he started it with, yeah, I did my PhD and it was a complete waste of time. Bam. That's how we set the tone for this one. I loved that, but he was very open and I loved another thing in this conversation, which was how forthright he was with the downfalls of not understanding the broader product and bringing machine learning capabilities or AI capabilities into the product. So we went down a bit of a rabbit hole on how he has been remedying that and why he feels like it is important. And we finished it off. One thing that he mentioned, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but one of the last things he said was, it is so important for machine learning engineers to not only understand the metrics of their machine learning projects, but also to understand the metrics that the product team is looking at, because that will help guide you as you are creating your different AI, ML initiatives within the company. All right, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sachin. And even if you don't, you know, what would mean the world to me is if you share it with one friend and like, or review, or give us some stars wherever you are listening to this episode. And Sometimes that's because I have too much shit open, so I'm going to close, like, every other app. Yeah. I'm going to... Like, I don't need Spotify open right now as much as I love it, or Signal, or, like, 20... Mozilla Brave and... Safari. I just need Chrome right now.
0: Have you got uh, ChatGPT ins- installed? I don't. Do you? Uh, not. I mean, I just paid for the premium one today. So little church today. So that's uh, that's that's it's been a big amazing. Step. Yeah. Yeah. It's,
1: yeah. I, I mean, like, if, if you're if you're a programmer, you you must have it. So that's a copilot. Yeah. 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 Totally. It has become something where at least like to stay up to date and to be in with the times you have to be using it it's one of those like uh, early adopter things I think
0: yeah yeah um, I mean like it's, uh, for, uh, I'll probably describe myself as a Power Chat GPT user because uh, I'm, I'm really bad at writing shell scripts right so I've just gotten decent at writing Python but shell scripts is, it's a completely new world so what I do is go chat GPT and say write me a code to download s3 files it'll do that for me so um, yeah so it, the, the small things like that
1: it's really good at um, and I'm sure it'll be you'll be much better things as we go along too have you um, have you messed around with some of the tools that help you validate the output and make sure that it's real scripts or are you just plugging them in and then once they work, you're yep. good, or...? I
0: I am hoping for the test. And Look, I do test it, I do test it myself, right? But... In production. Uh, because these are production code that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm an ML engineer, that is uh, the quality of the code. I am very bad at writing tests, so, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, but saying that, you can get ChatGPT to write the test as well. So... Yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, so you can you can get around that. That's an
1: that's easy thing to get around. Um Actually, one of the hackathons that we had recently was in Berlin. And one of the submissions, I voted for it to be like one of the winners, but the actual demo broke. So the other judges, it wasn't me, it was the other judges. I'm going to just throw them under the bus right now. They were like, oh, it was good, but the demo didn't work. And the submission was that you have code generated and then... If there's errors in the code, you have agents that go through and they grab the errors and then they paste it back into chat GPT and they figure out what the error is and then the agents go and they update the code. So it's the full cycle where you can be a little bit more, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but just lazy, I guess.
0: Yeah. I I mean, that is valuable because right now what I do is if there is an error, I, I manually go back and paste it and then it it goes, oh, sorry, you're right. And I'll go and correct it. And then I paste it back and then just keep going back up. So if if that process is automated, yeah, sure. I can see the, can see the value in there on that, on its own.
1: Yeah. I think the hard part right now is just dealing with agents that are reliable. That's where I think in all of the hackathons that I've seen they kind of fall over at a certain point. And so I know there's a lot of hard work being done by a lot of people out there to make agents more reliable, and that's uh active, cutting-edge piece of this machine learning and AI industry. But Yeah. Um,
0: so, I mean, I only have a very basic understanding of agents, so what I understand of agents is that they, um, it's prompts, if I understand correctly, but very detailed, very specific prompts so that you basically define the boundaries of what um, OpenAI or whatever it is can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that kind of agent is going to last for too long because the my hypothesis again, uh, my hypothesis it's an uninformed hypothesis is. Um, <laughs> Disclaimer. Will, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, is that. It's already good at understanding language. Uh, I mean, compared to five months ago, it's really good. at So, I mean, when I tell um, an agent, I know exactly what I want. I'm assuming that exactly what I want is only going to get better uh, with more training, more data. So, um, like even right now, ChatGPT has this thumbs up and thumbs down thing. So I'm assuming that they, if, if I give a thumbs up, it will... It will keep that as a training data. Go back and feed it, feed it back in, um, especially if it gets it wrong, right? So, mm-hmm. especially if it get the, the wrong ones are the most important bits, right? So that's what you need to feed back and um, improve it. So, um, yeah, if it's a prompt engineered agent, I can see it getting better. But if it's if it's an agent that actually I don't know accesses a web or accesses a pipe and terminal, those things, yeah, those things are. Um, those things are amazing. Yeah. So because that just extends extends uh, the capabilities, right? So,
1: Yeah, exactly. So, all right, dude, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing and what you're up to. I've got your whole history here. And yes. I mean, you're, uh, you're yeah. so humble. You were like, I don't know, because all the other people that you've had on the podcast are big names and big hitters. But you're... In your own right, like you are also quite a big hitter. What's your story? Give us the breakdown. I know you got a PhD, you went to what? That was, yeah, let me, let me start with that, right?
0: So I, I, I did my PhD in Bayesian machine learning and, um, if, if I'm being honest, that's the, uh, biggest waste of my life based of time that I've ever had. So
1: no way. It, Why do you say that? What? So Crazy. I spent
0: I spent four and a half years doing a PhD, right? In minimum wage. It was one of the loneliest times of my life. So I do not recommend uh, doing that unless unless of course you're rich and you don't have anything better to. Um, anyway. So the reason that uh, that I personally regret it, it's like when I was doing my one, mine was very theoretical. Um, I was doing in, a, in an area called Gaussian processes. And at the time the best that we could fit was like thousand thousand data points right and that was the best that we could do this was like 2010 between 2010 and 2015 so when neural networks are just starting to take off right so I kind of missed that neural network uh bus I I suppose during my PhD at least um and yeah I I think I think we got to a point where it was a million points so which was amazing for for a Bayesian uh for a Bayesian thing so um Anyway, once I finished my PhD, I did this uh, did this course on um basically it was just an MNIST data set, right? So it's sixty thousand data points. And it was just amazingly fast, just a f- yeah. So we just did a few layers and like you got this near hundred percent accuracy. And that was like, whoa, okay, I'm not going back to Bayesian hurricane. So um <laughs> but look oh, it's uh it's not it's okay. Bayesian sites have come back, like all the stable diffusion models that you see have some Bayesian foundation in them, right? So it, it is grounded in the Bayesian site. But the point is in terms of speed, uh, in terms of what you can do with the model, the the neural networks capability is just so much bigger than uh, what uh what you would do as a from just using Bayesian tools. So after that, uh so after that, uh, I got I got lucky enough to start at a small startup that had just been bought out um i started there as a data scientist mostly just analyzing data i didn't actually know any python at that point at all so i, I think i got lucky uh lucky getting hired to a mostly a software company um so, so uh yeah so that's where i started doing like python learned about docker uh, started learning about deep learning so that the next six months um uh, it's it's in in that 6 months i feel like i learned way more than what i did
1: in those 4 years so that's oh, wow. again a reason to say oh man phd really wasn't for me so when you say you learned a bunch more in those 6 months yeah. it's you learned useful information for the industry as opposed to this deep dive on the research side of things
0: um it's to, to be honest actually both right so the thing with with doing a phd is that you go Deep into the rabbit hole that might not matter to the rest of the community in a few years, right? So that that there's always that risk. Um, but the good, like, I'm, so I'm still obsessed about the math side of things. So I still try to keep that side as well as the technical side up. Um, and the good thing that I saw was that that deep learning, like, did all these weird tricks to apply their problems to very different domains. Um, I think like one of the early examples I can think of is like GANs, like generating images. Just the way that they did that was very, it's very different to how like statistical machine learning had done things because they were just going, here's a classification problem, here's a uh, regression problem, you know, the standard stuff, and uh, let's try and fit it. Whereas this thing came along and said, hey, let's try and generate images, right? So it's still using very similar tricks, uh, very similar loss functions, but used it in a very different
1: ways. Yeah. And so then you realized, oh, maybe I need Docker. Maybe I need Python skills and you, you kept up with the math. And from there though, like you've done some awesome stuff and especially what I love about your story is that you've stayed on this deep learning path and you've really gone down, I don't know if it's down the rabbit hole, but you've, you've stayed true to deep learning. When deep learning a lot of times the criticism that we have from other engineers that come on here is like for ninety percent of the problems, deep learning is overkill. Why not just yeah. use the um that's, the stuff that's fast and lightweight?
0: That's so okay. Let me let me talk about the lightweight thing, right? So it's it's twenty twenty-three now, right? So to say that you can't deploy a deep learning model in production because it's too heavy is just simply wrong, right? So that's that's let's throw that side out um, because like these days there's Docker now. There's you don't need a GPU as well. Like there's plenty of things that you can apply to without without just without with using just normal CPUs that um, and it'll be fast enough. Um, so yes, like XGBoost is still better for tabular data with the. With tabular data, obviously that's that's the one thing that non-deep learning models have a big edge on. So they've tried to beat it. Like I think TabNet was one of the first papers that tried to beat it, and it's still not there yet. But again, I do think it's getting closer and closer. The gap is getting smaller, right? So I do think it will overtake at some point. Um, but that's that's tabular data, right? So I feel like again we're not. Um, we're not thinking far enough. So, again, disclaimer my, my opinion. Um, so, for example, um, a lot of tabular data have um, text rows in them, right? So, most of the time when you're doing analysis, you just go, oh, we'll just extract a few keywords from this. Or, uh, yeah, so do some simple NLP type things. And then let's do the treat this as a normal. Tabular problem where you have one column to uh, predict. Um, but the better way, I think, is to take those text data, uh, use your favorite, I don't know your NLP transformer, and then use those extra features and then do your predictions. Yeah, so you can go beyond what you used to do if you can combine uh, deep learning into this whole problem space.
1: So it's basically a step in the pipeline, and allowing for being open-minded about using deep learning as one of these steps in your in your orchestration.
0: Yeah, that part I think it depends on the problem. Um, so again, if, if it's a if it's a something traditional like I don't know, uh, classify the risk of this customer, then um, or the churn models, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Like we 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 know that. We have a known process to do this, um, okay. but I think what what I would like to see happening in the industry is go beyond the
1: just the churn models. Just see your would you consider like recommendation or lead scoring?
0: Let's talk about search actually rather than recommendation because I'm not I'm not as familiar with that. So um, with search, the traditional way of doing it is to extract keywords um, or stem stem words and then search a library and then. Uh, recommend them but but you would obviously re-rank the results based on frequency of how, how many people clicked on them um, so um, I'm trying to get our company to look at clip for to do image search uh just simply because when you type in a longer query it makes far more sense the context might matter right so yeah. um, so if i say bird sitting on a tree like the the sitting part is not I mean, it's it's if you, yeah, it, compared to bird sitting on a bench or bird under a bench, so that context really matters, right? Uh, the order of the words matters, so that gets thrown away as soon as you stem the words and you just take a frequency uh, approach to finding it. So uh, that's a very good way of getting vector databases in and trying to do vector search, especially now that um, there's so many there's so many um, competitors in that space. So I know Elasticsearch is offering that now. Um,
1: Everybody. I, I was at the um, Databricks and AI summit and every database out there has some kind of story around how they are supporting vector databases. They're now like a vector database. I was at the MongoDB booth and they were like, oh yeah, we do vector database too. Yeah, yeah. It's like, of course you do. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah, and it's.
0: I think it's important, right? So I think in the next few Uh, next few years like they will I'm not sure about overtaking like there's certainly uh, there's certainly a reason to use the classical things as well so the recent uh, the recent um, this clip that I did I uh, I searched for the results were looking good right I searched for Jesus right now obviously if you get this wrong like religious things it it can be very offensive right so and like there was one image of Jesus but the rest of it was like ah it's a bit questionable right so so if you, yeah, so there are cases when you do get it wrong, you get it wrong spectacularly badly, right? So um, so this this is a perfect case of using deep learning as a step in your process, right? So you use your, uh, your keyword stems to gather a large, uh, larger than usual set of images, and then you can use your deep learning to re-rank it. So use uh, both in combination. So just, just to get much better results.
1: Break down this whole clip uh, blog post that you wrote and what you're doing. I mean, we should probably take a step back, say what the use case is, say what you're working on at Canva, because I think that's probably important to give a bit of context around what the goal was, what you're trying to do there.
0: Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so when it comes to multilingual search, uh, we, we, some poor, poorly resourced languages, for example. When we don't know how to stem a word right or we might not have a as a big of a library of knowing hey this word maps to this when it comes to stemming so the results when it's non-english especially can be it's it's definitely worse off than, than the English search results right so uh, one way to get around this is to use deep learning to try and match up here's my query here's my here's the best image that's possible so how do we do that what well, we do is we take the query and we encode it into uh, embedding, So embeddings is just a set of numbers. And we would also do that on the images as well. So what we're going to do is instead of matching words now, we're going to try and match up, here are the closest numbers that you can get. With the text encoding, what you can do is there's actually a lot of multilingual models right now. So if you go to Hugging Face, search for multilingual, there's so many out there. And the good thing that they can do is they can map. So if I if I say uh, cat sitting on a bench, and it will map to the same well, or same or very similar version of that in French as well. So the numbers will match up very similarly, um, and the image embedding is exactly the same. That doesn't matter because it's just an image. There's nothing multilingual about the image. So what you need to do is I need to search in whatever language that you want to. It'll map to the same number set. You use a vector
1: database to go and search for that in, um, yeah, in your library, and voila, you got your image. And then, so what you were doing at Canva is you were saying, hey, how can we bring Clip into this, right?
0: Yeah. So, uh, so the Clip, okay. So the Clip model is is really Clip is two models, right? So Clip is how can I use uh, the text model to project it into a certain set of numbers, um, and how can I take. Uh, image model and again projected in a set of numbers, right? So, Clip is all about trying to line up those numbers uh, so that they match. So, um, if you think about one dimension, like if I, you can understand that two is close to one, right? So, mm-hmm. now the thing is, uh, these are multi dimensional numbers. So, imagine that we are on this huge planet, uh, but the distance in center is one kilometer, right? Uh, so, and there's people randomly spread out across the across the planet, um, and what we're going to do is we have a second planet, and that's representing images, right? So now, what's really important is like is the direction from um, from the center to this person on the text planet, and the same direction from the center to in the image planet. So we have this little magnet that comes and says, "Oh, okay, this." Um, uh, a cat image is pointing towards, I don't know, Australia, right? So, uh-huh. and then you go and look on the on the text planet. Hey, who's which one? Is, which one of you is a cat? And I'm going to try and drag you uh, to towards Australia, right? Um, and but at the same time, it it even while that magnet is doing that, it kind of has this pushing away effect of everything else, right? So it it's not as strong with the uh, the non cat. Uh, people but it does have a small effect of pushing away so the point I'm trying to make is it's trying to line up the direction um, of the cat image and the cat text has to roughly point in the same direction um, and I hope that exp- explained that decently well enough because now take that, that 3D planet and burst that into like 100
1: dimensions or plus,
0: right? So that's That's effectively what yeah clip is.
1: Um, I just want to know more about these cat people. Tell me about them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's that's a lot of cat images, right? So that's that's uh, that's that's somewhat somewhat of a problem because obviously um, we will do really well with when we're trying to cat images, but when we try to find uh, non-cat images, that that so I I don't know what's what's a random word a um, a phablet fancy ball. Bounceable, right? The Bounceable. Um, so those are very rare search terms, are very rare. Um, yeah, it's it's barely, it's never hardly a caption, right? Not a bounceable, maybe a fablet because it hasn't appeared in a long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's very few of those training examples so we don't get to see them now. What I try to do in my blog is to go, that's true that we haven't seen a fablet in a long time, but um, what if we take a pre-trained image, a pre-trained, uh, text encoder, right? So if I take that, freeze that model, and if I just say, okay, I'll take the last uh, output of that model and I project it. Um, so projection is just means putting a linear layer on top, uh, or a few linear layers on top. What if I can take a frozen text embedding, uh, project it to certain, certain dimensions, and um, and and I do the same on the on the image side, right? So again, freeze uh, uh, freeze the the original uh, image model, and the reason that I try to do that is to say, let the projection try to move those people around to the right place, because the text model already understands language, right? Yeah. So that way, it won't be a problem that it hasn't I specifically haven't seen fablet, because that projection should just
1: Guided along, so let me see if I if I understand that correctly. Because of the understanding in text, it's like it it leans on that. It's almost like a support mechanism, yes. And so it can give the direction. What well, it gives a starting. Okay, so it gives a it gives a starting point,
0: right? Um. So think of that this projection layer that I keep thinking of. Think of think of that as a map, right? So, but this map is more of a. Um, it tells you. It tells you the directions, right? So it tells you the directions, but it does not, it does not care about your starting point, right? It doesn't care where you start off from. It will always say left, right, left, right, until you get to that point, right? So, uh-huh. yeah, so that's, that's really the main advantage of getting that.
1: So I guess what, what's the obvious uh, conclusion for me, what I have been beaten senseless over the last three years when it comes to using machine learning from the community, is what were the results of this? How did you make a business case? Like, how did you show that this was actually worth doing yep. and worth pursuing? Um,
0: so the business case in this case is more for non-English search terms, right? So I want to tr- try and see if we can uh, improve the non-English one. So. I should, I should say that we haven't tested this in production, so we don't know the results yet, right? So it's more of a question of can we can we do that for uh, non-English ones so that someone searching in, say, Sri Lanka, where which is where I'm from, will have the same experience as someone searching in Australia, in an English-speaking country. Um, so that's the, yeah, that's the business case. Um, we didn't use the original clip, uh, Clip image, which is also a can on Hugging Face. Hanging Face has everything, right? So you can download whatever you want to uh, from Hugging Face. Um, so the reason we didn't use it was because it's uh, relatively bulky. So my personal goal was to try and see if I can build a smaller version of um, of Clip, uh, smaller and multilingual version of Clip.
1: Canva is a very visual company. Right, And so I think about all of the different use cases that you are facing at Canva. And when you think about what you can spend your time on and how you can tackle these different problems, how do you look at what different things you can bring machine learning to? Um, So that's actually changed a lot in the past
0: six months, right? So with this... uh, uh, just because of the explosion of, of AI models, like we, we've really Network. changed focus and try to, uh, yeah, we're trying to use as, as many models as we can as, as everywhere that we can. Um, uh, obviously, that's not, that doesn't always work well. You should, like there's certain things where you shouldn't uh, shove uh, machine learning into. Uh, I mean, what you got is, yeah, well, what you got is perfectly fine. Um, I can think of one example where I think I got it wrong, right? So, um, so we have a creator's program and we pay, uh, we pay according to, uh, I think how much they, how much time they spend on a certain, uh, template, um, uh, or the, the market that they're in, like depending on the demand and so on, uh, based on clicks basically. But we do have another, like to make things a bit fairer, if, if you think, Hey, the presentation, even though the number of clicks might be low. They would have spent three hours on that, so let's pay them a little bit more compared to an Instagram post, which is just one, uh, one page. Um, so now the the point where I got it wrong was to I suggested as if we treat this as a money making problem, uh, we got the data on the clicks, uh, we got data on whether that that whether that led to um, people paying for Camera Pro or not. So we can use that data and machine learning to say, let's divide the money up according to what the benefit was to Canma compared to fairness, so to speak, right? Okay. Or uh, what drives up more? What drives up more revenue? So you can treat that as, as a machine learning problem, but that's also it's also unethical in some ways, right? So you're um, yeah you're forcing you force well it's unethical and it will drive. It will make Canva worse off I should I should that's that's probably a better point It'll make can worse off because that means people can gamify it and they can focus on Instagram posts, which are one page gets them more money so um yeah so that would have been a bad use case of machine learning
1: yeah basically because it incentivizes the wrong activities
0: correct yeah that's right so it mm-hmm. uh, it incentivizes. Yeah, so it, like you could probably get a VPN and go to the to the the bigger markets and so on. So um, yeah, it, it gives you a way of producing low-quality templates as well more frequently because again, I'm assuming frequency will matter. So I, I think I feel like YouTube is probably one of the places where they kind of got that balance right, right? So in terms of the, with the creators, they like when I look at my recommendations, it's always very relevant, high-quality Um so yeah so they got their payment system right in in my opinion okay. so um and i'm not sure if they use machine learning in, in their entire pipeline or if it's just certain bits of that
1: so so basically from the last six months till now you've been trying to add ai and machine learning into everything that you can not, not
0: okay it's so, camera is a huge like there's a huge machine learning team right so I, um, I'm probably, uh, yeah, I'm certainly not one of the most, yeah, there's plenty of more, way more successful engineers, uh, at at Canva. So I think that's one thing. Um, one thing I struggled in the past is probably, uh, not understanding enough of product, right? So I've, I've always gone behind these mathematical problems, like clip, like I just mentioned, uh, I've been obsessed with, um, what was the, um, reinforcement learning problem where you have, um, Bandits, right? So the payment system, I was trying to think of bandits at that point. So yeah, I spent way too much time thinking about maths and not enough about product. So that's, that's a weakness of my hand
1: all right real quick one the folks over at prem ai have been kind enough to sponsor this episode and they wanted to let you know that they just got done compiling the most comprehensive ebook on the internet about the state of open source ai if you were wondering what the hell is going on in this space you've got it covered with this ebook. It goes over everything from evaluation data sets and leaderboards, fine tuning, vector databases, developer tooling, platforms, hardware, and of course a deep dive into the models, all of which are open source. And so how did they do this? Well, the Prem AI team has been working exclusively with the open source stack and open source models for the past year. And they compiled all their learnings and what trade-offs you need to be thinking about if you are adding some of this open source material into your stack. And that can be found at book.premai.io. You can go ahead, read it for free. It's out there. And it's also a living document. So if you feel like something is missing, you can submit a PR and get it added to the ebook by going to book dot and we're back to the pod. Yeah so I think I'm trying to get my head
0: around where where should I put machine learning, like you said. And that's I don't have a good answer to that yet. Right. So maybe ask me in one year's time
1: I'll probably have a better answer. Uh I, well but dude that's something that has become so apparent to me over the last six months because of this now ability to jam AI into so many things that were much harder to incorporate AI into before. Now you have a lot of people that are able to just get up and running, and these people are coming at it from different backgrounds. And yes. I see it. some incredible product talent yep. that basically unlocked a new level to their ability of designing product and so the flip side of that is now thinking as a machine learning engineer or someone who is very deep in the ai and set into ai and its its inner workings how do i also make sure that i level up and understand the product as opposed to staying very very deep on the maths yeah. or the the other pieces of, of whether it's just orchestrating the data or et cetera et cetera and not yeah. thinking about that product. So are you doing anything specific to try and get you there?
0: Um, unfortunately, not enough. But I think what I what I'm trying to do is really talk to more uh, more on the product side, right? The, the engage a bit more on the, with the product managers. I think that's really I mean, uh, that's really key. I. I am noticing a pattern of the product goals still remaining the same and you're trying to shove in AI into that product, which is, which I think is, is a bad way of going about it. But I would hope. and
1: What do you mean? What do you mean by the product goals staying the same? So
0: a channel model, it's, it's, it's done and tested like we, we know how to do it, uh, but the the, the, the good thing and the bad thing that OpenAI has done is that it's really uh, it's really let people imagine right so um, there's a lot more that we actually I'll have I'll have a little take on that as well but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's made non-machine learning people think hey maybe we can do this uh, and just shove machine learning so if, if there was a certain black box that we couldn't do in the past it'd go oh yeah let's just
1: Use AI to solve this problem. I fully understand what you're saying there when it comes to hard problems that aren't easily solved and thinking that AI is your escape hatch to be able to just, okay, well, we haven't been able to solve this with other methods, so we might as well try AI and throwing that in yeah. and seeing if that works a lot of times, I I fully agree with you. Is is it needed? Is it useful? I think one thing that AI
0: is going to help you do is to really sidestep all these intermediate goals and then treat whatever the customer needs straight away. Right. So I think that's that's really the capability that we're going to be having. So, uh, for example, like okay, let's talk about, let's talk about search. Right. Let's uh, when people come to Canva. Yes, you search for images. Yes, you will uh, search for certain fonts, but at the end of the day, that's not really the goal. That's that's like a minor step to get to that goal, right? So what AI is gonna give us is the capability to go, okay, what they're coming to do is a birthday card for, for grandma. Just give them that, right, straight away. And uh, yeah, so all these intermediate steps become unnecessary. Um, so I mean look we see like I am these these are extreme goals these like you still you still you still need to safeguard your main product right so I'm not encouraging anyone to just just go and do this straight away right just be mindful of what can go wrong because things again can go wrong really bad uh, but the point is like you you can jump there's a lot of cases where you can jump straight to the final product final need rather than hey let's Tiny steps, uh, baby steps, and all along the way.
1: Yes, I understand what you're saying. There is that we again. It goes back to rethinking the product. If you know that these capabilities are possible, how can we eliminate unnecessary steps?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, or or. Uh, Or just, it could be a completely new product altogether, right? So, but yes, yeah. So if you can go, here's what we have. Here's what my customer's asking for. How do you get from A to B rather than, or A to Z rather than going B, C, D, right? So,
1: um, so, so then talk to me how you're interacting with your product team now that you have this, A, desire to level up on the product side of things and B, understanding, of the new capabilities
0: my personal goal has been to do have more meetings with product managers right so for me my goal has just just been to talk to my immediate group uh talk, talk a bit more about um, what what are our goals I'm still yeah I'm still not there in the sense that I'm still not um I'm still not a good enough product engineer so to speak right so I and I think and I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to stop reading papers and try to focus on this. Uh, but, but
1: uh, well, you love
0: that math. I I do, it's I like do. a drug. Huh? It is a passion. But <laughs> let's let's go back to actually let's go back to something that you mentioned before about things have changed um, with in the past few months. I my personal feeling is that uh, when it comes to machine learning, like it really hasn't. Nothing has fundamentally changed, right? So what's changed is that. OpenAI came with this amazing product, and it ignited a lot of people's imagination, which is which is a good thing. But um, and well, oh, I think a good way of putting this is say, if you can pose your problem as a text problem, then you are going to get far, right? But if you can't pose the problem as a text problem, so for example, uh, risk modeling. That's still going to do your traditional ML models. That's that you can't you can't use an NLP model to do the same uh, the same problem. So that's when the maths becomes important, right? So uh, when you try to do those other problems, which is not next word prediction. So yeah, so it, th- th- there will always be a place for the maths, right? It's, it's just a matter of um, convincing product to, to go and explore those. Other things so like I, I don't expect that to happen in the next six months. This is just such a huge opportunity to waste. Like I think we will be in this NLP for the next you no know, uh, five years. Um, but um, yeah, those other problems will continue to exist in in different different formats. So I think the two camps right now in the machine learning space is like tree based models and deep learning models. Right. Uh, the thing is the. Again, coming back to the maths, the loss function is still the same, right? They're trying to install the same metric that they're trying to optimize over. So when it comes to marrying up maths and programming, deep learning as actually, I personally think is doing a much better job because it uh, you can do a lot of wonderful things with these loss functions and, uh, and come to a conclusion. Whereas XGBoost, I just found it a bit more awkward to define those loss functions. So Will they come together? Okay, um, I I hope so. I hope so, but I don't I don't have a informed opinion about whether they can. Um, but I do I do think that deep learning will overtake it at some point. Now, Bo- Boyan uh, will have something to say about that as, as he always does. But uh, um, yeah, so I do, I do think it, there will be a inflection point where it will generally overtake, and I do think that will happen uh, in the next. Uh, if I had to, if I had to bet, I would bet in the next two years.
1: Yeah, and Boyan, for people who are listening and not super familiar with it, he's a loud Twitter voice. Yeah, yeah oh, uh, but but and...
0: like, he's he's, he's he's a genius, right? Like, I, yeah, I very much. Uh, yeah, he's he's a Kaggle grandmaster, as far as I know. So it's yeah, he if anything has uh, yeah, is he's, uh, he's got things to back him up, right? Like,
1: yeah, a hundred percent. So then the. The other question that I was thinking about, just you having your head in papers and thinking about where things are going, I've heard a lot of criticism, and you kind of hinted at this earlier, on the current architecture and it having its limitations. Sure. Do you feel like we're going to go past Transformers? Have you seen anything that's interesting? Is that even a thought? Is that on your radar?
0: Beyond transformers, um, it's it's doing okay, right? So, uh, like I've seen. So, the problem with transformers for people who don't know is is the length of the text, right? So, the 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 computational complexity is O n squared, but meaning that like if I, the complexity of of a sentence that's four words is is like um, okay, it's four squared compared to uh, a single word which is just one squared anyway point is it's just a squared right complexity
1: yeah you don't have to do public math where you let listeners figure that one out on their own yeah. grab your calculator yeah we're like chat GPT in that regard we don't like to do public math we
0: don't do public math yeah so uh, so that's uh, that's the biggest limitation of transformers but they they do have workarounds uh some papers are coming out with, I think flash attention is probably the latest thing to try and deal with that but point is uh like I've seen I've seen a paper with a million tokens that it could deal with so yeah there's people people are tackling the problem right so it's um it's a version of transformers underneath all of that so uh will that go away I can't see anything major coming up anytime soon uh, but again that might just be me with my limited, uh, yeah, uh, vision, I guess. So, point is, it's it's doing it's doing quite well on its own, right? So, do we need a new architecture? I don't, I don't think so, not yet, at least. Um, what does excite me though is is um, is this uh, graph ML side. So that is far more exciting uh, because um, the thing with text or tabular is that you can only look at data that's linked to it, right? So within a row, it, it's always the same row within text, it's just similar it's 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 a line of text, right? But GraphML, it can pull in images, it can pull in text, it can pull in t- tablet data, so that is, I think, going to yeah, my personal gut feeling is that that will prove far more interesting than uh, just transformers on
1: its own, what it can do.
0: Just marrying up all this data, we're still not using all Possible data.
1: So, if I'm understanding that correctly, the idea is transformers. We haven't sufficiently explored, and we haven't pushed the limit to where we feel like we're bored of them yet. So, we've got a lot of surface area to cover. But at the same time, we can incorporate things like graph ML into what we're doing right now with transformers. Um, ooh, would I go that far? Like, I'd, I'd like to see that happen. That the
0: problem. The problem with uh, GraphML is other libraries right they're not mature enough yet um, I, uh, the the guy who was at Pinterest for a while I forget his name uh, I think he had one of the, the leading libraries but the point is like, not many people are working on it so everyone's excited about Transformers so there's a lot of like brain power going into that area right now uh, not so much this other area and that fair enough it's, it's, it's not a lot of value on its own right Um but I do think, yeah, when it comes to, I don't know, let's even think about SQL databases, right? So you can link up a whole bunch of data types and uh, even missing data types, uh, which which current ML struggles with. Um, yeah, so if we, if we can figure out a way to link data together, I think that will that is where graph GraphML can come in and play together. I think Transformers will still be a part of that, right? So, um, there's nothing special about transformers. It's just this attention mechanism that it has. So, how, if I if I'm looking at a word, cat, like how do I know which word it's paying attention to? That's that's really what's special about transformers. This everything else is just just linear layers.
1: Can you explain to me exactly what graph is? Because I only know it through. I'm pretty sure I've just seen it in reference to databases, maybe, and then also. Uh, like different teams on different database companies that I know are working on graph ML.
0: So I think we need to make the distinction between graph ML and GraphQL, right? So I think a lot of people, uh, when they say we're doing data science with graphs, they usually mean this graph QL thing, which is somewhat mature product. Uh, but graph ML is th- doing inference on graphs. So for example, uh, I think Twitter did this. So one way of saying whether uh, an article is fake data is to literally train a uh, classifier on natural language right Now you can get plenty of data on that on natural language, have people label things as going fake or not fake but what they did differently which is which I thought was really unique was instead of looking at uh, the individual tweet what they looked at was the, the network of how these things spread right So uh, fake, Uh, fake news, what happens, the tendency was that these bots would come and retweet them, right? And it would grow at a faster uh, pace compared to normal news. So that, looking at that network, looking at how it spread that, and doing that classification on the network actually led to far more reliable results of saying what was fake, what was not, rather than saying, let's look at the content of um, of the tweet. Because again, like, what's fake news to one person might not be fake news to others
1: or it may be fake in 2020 and then in 2023 it's not fake and so you learn new information or whatnot so it's really about and and graph is just figuring out how how like how does graph play into that so what was graph about that right that whole, so
0: the graph about that was uh so if you think of the 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 original tweeter as a node, uh, you would think of the edges as who would read it or who would, yeah, who would read it. And the the other side of the node is who would retweet it, right? So hmm. uh, in that case, they were looking at this, like a, like a third inf- piece of information, which was a pace of transmission on the thing. Uh, but yeah, so that's where you get the edges and the nodes. And yeah, how do I marry up? These uh, that all this data. So
1: you mentioned GraphQL, but then there's also Graph ML. Is Graph ML does it have anything to do with databases, or was that whenever I heard Graph,
0: it can as long as you define what the nodes are, right? So if you if if you think of a database as a node, right, a, a table. Um, now I, I know I'm not doing justice to the GraphM health community, but uh, this is, again, in my very limited knowledge. They're
1: going to riot. You're going to see <laughs> they're gonna cancel me, right? so,
0: Yeah. Um so on when Yeah. So when I do SQL queries, I'm usually joining up to, to libraries, right, to points of data. So um, sometimes that data might be missing, right? So you might get the first, first few columns populated and the next few columns missing. So... The good thing about graph ML is that it can have a varying number of nodes around it, right? So when we're doing this machine learning on over graphs, if there's missing data, it's equivalent to not having a node at all that it's joining to, right? So it can have variable amounts of data points, so this information that comes into that node when you're doing the machine learning over this graph, this entire graph, depends on what it's connected to and what's already populated. So we don't we might not have this missing data problem at all when it comes to uh, graph ML. So I know XGBoost and stuff is all is quite good at dealing with with uh, missing data, but I'm very much talking about okay, what what if we treat this as a bunch of nodes coming in together?
1: Awesome, graph ML is the future. You heard it here first.
0: It's it's a, it's the untapped it's the untapped pressure. That's that's my that's what I'm saying.
1: Oh, I like it. Yeah, yeah, we can make sure it's. Uh, and I'll send one over to you. And <laughs> that is uh...
0: well, I'll send uh, because I'll send you the link of the person I talked to. Like I, uh, uh, I think he did a Stanford uh, series on GraphML. I was quite, yeah, quite fond of the way how he did it. So uh,
1: nice, yeah, yeah. We can add that to the show notes, yeah. so anybody listening can also have a gander at it. And now there is one thing I want to talk to you about, also, which I find fascinating when it comes to how long you've been playing around with gpt yeah uh because you mentioned that you fine-tuned gpt too so a what was that experience how did you go about that and like tell me more i think there's probably a handful of people that were playing around with gpt before the boom
0: yeah so i think what a lot of people don't realize is that gpt is quite old right so it's about like the original GPT is about 4 or 5 years old and people have been playing around that for a long time so uh, two years ago I wanted to do so I was working this user voice team basically we get all these problems from users saying um, hey can you help me with the payment can you help me with my design Um, can we have an automatic agent having automatic replies or at least uh, at least a portion of our users right so uh, and what i was going to do was train here's the input of here are the tickets that came in here's the output of how our agents our like human agents uh responded yeah. to to uh to those tickets so you have your input output and um yeah or what uh, and i wanted to train a gpt model now it didn't um at the point like my knowledge in training those models wasn't too great so i didn't really get too far but um so these days, it's it's a lot easier. There's a lot of tools like you can you can uh, quantize it. You can uh, reduce the uh, the so like right now, 30 point is uh, four bytes. They uh, reduced it four is it four bits recently as well. So point is, there's a lot more. There's a lot more tools. Um, I didn't actually use the any of those tools. I just just did the normal fine tuning in my little blog post where I did some grammar correction thing. Uh, but point is that you can you can. Yeah, it's you can do that already using Honeyface, just using manual, without having to resort to uh, using OpenAI. Um, yeah, so OpenAI is an easy, quick way of doing things now. Like it's such a it's such a knowledgeable model that like I don't I don't need to train a very specific model for grammar correction. It can correct the grammar for you, right? Because it knows about the entire world, uh, so to speak. Um, so you can get around that without any training with OpenAI but if you want to save a bit of money if you want to do things in-house I think I think it's still valuable to have those uh, skills within your company
1: that's the huge trade-off that I'm seeing because people are able to get a quick feature out there and it goes back to that product discussion that we were talking about before and see if there's any value and then if there is value they can bring it in-house and they can figure out phase two yes. of it
0: I think that's that's a uh, that's that's an amazing strategy, right? So test test it out with just using Open AI because at the end of the day, um yes, it is like if you if you already set up the tools, yeah, it is cheaper to train it in house, but you're not factoring in your engineering time, right? So uh, you're not factoring maintenance costs and all that. So um yeah, by all means test out test out your product using uh the open AI uh, API and then come back to train. Uh, training model.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you can, right, because I know there's a lot of use cases out there that are not allowed to send data or do anything outside of their little walled garden. So in those cases, it makes a lot of sense. How have you found, I guess you probably are very opinionated about the control that you have with models that you are working on in-house as opposed to sending out to some third party API. Have you looked at those trade-offs? I am guessing just from talking to you for the last hour that your opinions are that it's it's better to be in-house always, uh, although you're not
0: no, no, I'm not I'm not that that strictly around that because uh end of the day there's only at Canva kind of we have, I think now we have us 50 or 60 MLEs. But we have a lot more teams, right? So, um, so if you don't have an in-house ML ML engineer, obviously you can't like you can't borrow other teams' uh, engineers. So, um, yeah, by all means, go ahead and do this because, uh, yeah. So, a a lot of problems that ML engineers can do have been, especially if you're in an NLP side, which is what I was. Uh, can be done <laughs> by open AI, right? So it's a back end problem now. So it's no longer an ML problem. Um, so yeah, so it it's a very much a resource problem, right? So do you yeah, do you, one, do you have MLEs? Two, do the MLEs have different problems to work on, which is far more important, right? So and the third one, I guess like the very important thing that you mentioned is speed, like speed to market, right? So which which is really going to be crucial uh, for a lot of companies in the next few months.
1: There's a piece that I wanted to go down the rabbit hole a little bit of leading other ML engineers and leading teams and how you look at that and how, what have you found to be successful and where do you feel like maybe others can make missteps? Yeah.
0: I think I've made a lot of mistakes, right? So I think the biggest mistake that I've done in the past is really not aligning or understanding Product, right? So, I would too often be interested in a mathematical problem, whereas the problem really that brings in the money is way very different to to that. So, uh, that's uh, that's been a huge weakness of mine. And I think, that, and and I think maybe I'm brushing everyone with a with a broad stroke, but I think that that is going to be a problem of MLAs, especially if you come from an academic background, right? Trying to make that transition from academia into industry where the motivations are very different. Um, so um, yeah I think I think people if if I was to advise my younger self what I would tell is engage this product a little bit more often um, and uh, faster simpler models and that would uh, well maybe not simpler models I still think I, I still do think that all these cool uh, new toys do make a difference right so let's tough away the simple models for a second uh, the but 50. fast, like speed. Speed is crucial, right? Speed of how you, uh, like, uh, how fast you finish your model and move on to the next is very, very important. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, just so you can show off a few more toys. Right? I think that's that's the best way of putting it.
1: Yes. And talking about that, the one percent of these complicated models and this these hard math problems. How do you go about? Looking at the trade-offs of that, because it it seems to be a theme of, hey, there are very valuable problems that you can hit. Yeah. You just have to choose your battles.
0: Yes, you have to choose the battles. Yeah, I think that's a very nice uh, way of putting it. If I was to put a concrete number, I would say try and get a ten run time of immortals of three months. I think that should be that should be the absolute max. If you if whatever you're doing is taking is is or you can see that it's heading down that direction. Maybe it's time to, time to look at a different solution. Uh, work on something else, uh, because at the end of the day, what your uh, what the business really needs is you to deliver, right? So, coming back to Hugging Face, the good thing about Hugging Face is that, and all these other fancy libraries, is that they've gone, they've given you a lot of tools to do that, right? So you don't need to, you don't need to compromise on the fancy stuff. If you can use these tools, so that's that has changed, right? So, uh, yeah, by all means, go for bigger, more complicated models, but use the tools that are uh, available r- rather than uh, trying to do everything from scratch. Uh, so again, this is me switching to myself, uh, but I think I think yeah. that a lot of people will resonate with that.
1: I also think so, and it is one of those re- reoccurring themes that comes up time and time again on this podcast. And I don't think we can say it enough. What are some signs in your eyes that things aren't going as they should and maybe you need to scrap it? And how do you have that kind of self-talk of hold on just a little bit longer or let's scrap it?
0: Uh, It's it's like I found, uh, like one thing I found surprising about myself is like I get too attached to projects, right? Like I'm surprised that I do that because like, like I, I know that I wanted, we wanted different things, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have an answer for that. But let me let me talk about something that's tangential related. So uh, one thing I didn't understand was about metrics, right? So when I'm talking about metrics, I'm not talking about your precision, recall scores. I'm not talking about accuracy. What I mean is like product metrics, right? Which can be very different to um, to what machine learning engineers think. So uh my my keyword uh my keyword model, for example. So in that case, uh one thing that we yeah, the accuracy that we the metric that product cared about was about the pick rate, like out of the uh out of the keywords that suggest how many of the I should pick. So I think that's uh re- recall in ML terms. Now like in weights and biases, I did my precision recall. It's very different to what the actual recall was, right? So it's uh, in English, it's close. In non-English, it wasn't close, right? So, um, yeah. So I think I should have paid a lot more attention to testing my model as fast as I could, and then coming back and iterating, right? So and now I have moved on to different projects, so I can't quite improve that model uh, at this moment, uh, which is a shame. But uh, point is, I should have been, I should have been faster. I should have been using. The Hugging Face libraries, rather than uh, do my, do my own thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, focus on metrics. Focus on product metrics. I think that's that's a good way of figuring out is your is your model going the right way it should be.
1: That's so good. That is it. it just hits home that idea of product and how important it is to have that product mentality and recognizing what's important in it. It's a bit of a. It's like human nature. A having a hard time letting go of your creations and then be, it's like, at least inside myself, I also find myself not wanting to reach for off the self, off the shelf solutions yeah. and trying to think, oh, I could do this better. And so almost reinventing the wheel.
0: There is value in being able to tinker through things, changing things, um, And I do do genuinely think that it will make you a better engineer in the long term, but the business also needs you to be a different person in the short term, right? So it's a question of balancing that, and that's balancing things is probably the biggest thing that I struggle with with uh, with today. Like, uh, yes, you got your product versus reading papers problem as well, but uh, like I'm, I'm like I'm a parent now, so I got I got two kids, like I can't like I cannot keep up with uh, the explosions of papers that are coming up. So, um, yeah, so that's that's a bit of a, that's a, that's a real struggle that uh, I don't have an answer
1: for. I feel you, man. I also have two now, and just trying to keep up with everything is a job in itself.
0: Yeah, yeah like, and my children are very depending on my time. They're, they're getting older, the, the more time that they demand of me. So, um, yeah, just just... It's a bit hard to do right by everyone so um, okay. but again i think i think if you can get your product thinking right you can you can kind of get away from not needing to keep up to date with absolutely everything um just understanding what's important um i don't i, I again i don't know what's important because these days the the only one thing that seems to be important is just the open ai api and everything else is just blah whatever <laughs> If there are, yeah, I would love to see how other parents, uh, ML engineering parents deal with machine learning thesis because that, that's something, a uh, perspective that I'd love, love to hear about because this is a very, very demanding job being an ML engineer. So.
1: Excellent. Well, Sachin, this has been a brilliant conversation, man. I appreciate you doing this. I know it's late where you are in the world. I'm going to let you go. Uh, we'll just, we'll end it here. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: I'm Emmanuel Mason, machine learning engineer at Stripe and author of Building Machine Learning Powered Applications. And if you don't want your machine learning models to explode, well, you should subscribe to this podcast.